You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Morning. It is truly a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, just to come down and to proclaim Christ's word with you, to sing and to worship. Uh, during the first service, uh, as we were singing that last song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever had this happen before with a guest speaker, but I was like weeping in the front row. I just have loved that song. The Lord has used it to minister to me. So uh, I've had to pull myself together <laughs> both times as I'm getting up here, just thinking about how God has used songs like that and to worship with a community like this to both shape and form me. Um, I am genuinely grateful to be to be down here. I saw the list of the preachers when Jeff sent it out. He asked me to come and I was like, sure, of course, I'd love to feel honored. And then I saw the rest of the list and I was like, which one of these doesn't belong? You know, cause you guys have some good preachers coming uh, this summer. So, but I'm grateful, grateful to be here and to open up God's word with you. I love uh, your pastor. Jeff has been a friend to me. I spent a lot of my uh, early ministry career. I guess I'm still in my hopefully early ministry career, but spent a lot of time kind of in the academy, worked in a, went to seminary, worked at a seminary for a while until the Lord called me into the local church. And Jeff has been one of those pastors that I've looked to, benefited from. He's guided me uh, into the life of the local church. I've sat down with him a number of times and just to hear the story of Christ's grace to this church and through this church has been a privilege. Uh, It's clear that the Holy Spirit is among us, that Christ loves this church, that he's using this church. And so the fact that I get to be here I don't just consider this uh, like a guest preaching opportunity. I consider it uh, coming to see a family that I haven't gotten to see before. So it's really, really a, a joy for me to be here with you. Uh, I, what I get to do at the Village Church, uh, like uh, we just talked about, I oversee what's called the Village Church Institute. That's a fancy way of saying that I get to think a lot about, about discipleship in the life of the local church. I love God's word. I love how the spirit uses it to shape us and image bearers of Christ. I love the opportunity to teach and to preach and to look to Jesus for all things. So that's what I get to do. And I want to do that with you this morning. I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the, the verse up on the screen. This is gonna be Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 23. Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 23. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, particularly what is known as the Christ hymn, where Paul uses a song that the Colossians would have been familiar with, and he puts it into his letter itself. Before we read Colossians 1, um, I do want to introduce the topic today. What I want to talk to you about is something that I hope you've heard about before. I don't intend to say anything new or novel. I want to remind you of something very ancient and old, but still true. And it, it is, what does it look like to be a church or to be a people whose discipleship is so focused on the glory of Christ and the gospel that we never shift from the hope that we have in Christ. So basically what I want to talk to you about is just gospel-centered discipleship. What does it look like for us to be followers of Jesus who've placed everything, gone all in with Jesus and on his gospel? If you're interested in knowing where to look in the scriptures for that, of course, there's a number of places, but one of my favorite places to look is to look to the prayers that are contained in scripture. And what you have here in Colossians chapter one is Paul saying, this is what I'm praying for. This is what I hope God accomplishes in you. He's writing people that he loves and that he knows and he's, he's giving them insight into his prayer journal. You ever wanna see what a pastor really loves and cares about and wants, you look at their prayer journal and Paul is saying, Colossae, brothers and sisters, redeemer, village, My prayer for you is this. It's that you would be gospel-centered 
disciples. So Paul's going to go on here in Colossians chapter one to show us what he's praying for, for this church. And I think we can talk about us too, what he's praying for, what he prayed for, for us, for all healthy churches. And my main point is this, we'll, we'll talk about this phrase for the rest of the sermon. Gospel-centered discipleship is disciples who are people who grow in their knowledge of God for the glory of Christ, never shifting from the gospel. Disciples are people who are growing in a knowledge of God for the glory of Christ, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. Those will be our three points. The first is this. Disciples are people who are continually growing in their knowledge of God. Let's read Colossians chapter one, verse nine, beginning in verse nine. Paul says this, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. You see, this is Paul's prayer. I've not ceased to pray for you. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of God, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This begins this Christology hymn or this, this song about Jesus. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is just beautiful because for by him, all things were created. Nothing that was created wasn't created through him, whether it's in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Just to be clear, Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he would be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some of it, not half of it, not a lot of it. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you Colossians, you Christians, people who have confessed Jesus as Lord. He says, you were once alienated. You were hostile in mind. You've done evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's my main point one more time. Gospel-centered discipleship is this idea that we should be disciples who are continually growing in a knowledge of God for the glory of Christ as we stand firm on the gospel. Growing in a knowledge of God for the glory of Christ, standing firm in the gospel. The first point is this, that disciples are people, gospel-centered disciples are people who are continually growing in their knowledge of God. I hope you saw that in verses nine through 14, that a huge part, one of the hinge pieces of Paul's prayer is he says, my prayer for you is that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding in verse nine. And then, and then later he says in verse 10, that you would increase in the knowledge of God. 
So as Paul's writing this church at Colossae, he's writing to people he knows and he, and he begins with this prayer where he says, please keep growing in your knowledge of God. Keep on the path, keep increasing, keep growing. I came to faith um, in college. I didn't grow up in the church. If you wanted to kind of hear a post-Christian secular uh, family, that would be mine. My family had not rejected the gospel. They just had never heard the gospel. They weren't apathetic towards it. They just didn't know it. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I went to school at Colorado State University. And I was a freshman uh, living in uh, just a freshman dorm. And I traveled over to the student center and I was, I, I just ordered Burger King, and I'm sitting there eating a Whopper, and a sophomore named Nate Miller sits down right next to me, and he says, I'm supposed to read this with you. And he pulls out a booklet. I've never met this guy before. He pulls out a booklet, and it's called The Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody heard of The Four Spiritual Laws before? So a few of you. It's a track that Crew, Campus Crusade, used to use to clearly and simply communicate the gospel. And in the most uncompelling gospel presentation in the history of the world, he just says, I'm supposed to read this with you. It wasn't like, hey man, how many quarters are in a dollar? Four. By the way, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Like that would have been more compelling than I'm supposed to read this with you. And he just reads it. Like he doesn't ever look up and like ask for my input or like, hey, are you tracking with me? He just, he just reads it. He says, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But through your sin, you have been separated from God. But God has made a way back to him through the death of Christ. And if you place your faith in him, you can have eternal life in Jesus. And he just looks up and he's like, what do you think? I believe I actually just got saved. I didn't say that. I didn't have that word, but like, it felt like I'm genuine. I'm not joking with you. It felt like the heavens were opened. I felt like I was convicted of my sin. I was reminded of my separation from God. I was seen as Jesus as the only substitutionary atonement for my sin. And that through faith in him, I could have life forever with Jesus and that I could be forgiven of my sin. It was in that moment that I realized methods of evangelism don't matter because methods don't convert people. God does. Nate Miller sat down with me and he shared the four spiritual laws with me. Just this simple gospel presentation of being in relationship with God. Nate, perhaps more than anybody else until that time, had, had been the person who first shared the good news with me. The, the second person that has helped me grow in my love of Christ is my wife. My wife and I have been married for 12 years. She was the first Christian I ever met after, uh, after I got, after the Lord saved, the first Christian I know that I ever met after the Lord saved me. My wife is somebody who's helped me come to a greater understanding of the scriptures. She's helped me understand what forgiveness and grace and humility looks like. She's helped me to understand what it looks like to suffer and to, to walk with God through seasons of difficulty and seasons of darkness and seasons of doubt. I, my wife is a Christ follower and I love her. I wish she could have, could have been here because again, I just love her so much. I, I love my wife. Uh, if she was here, you would see that my wife is about five foot four. She has brown hair and she's very, very artistic. And for those of you who know my wife, you would actually be thinking of me right now, he actually doesn't know his wife at all. How could he possibly love her? His wife is five foot 11, has blonde hair and has not an artistic bone in her body, but is very athletic. But if I were to stand here before you and tell you, I love my wife so much. I just love my wife, but I don't even know basic attributes of my wife. Would you question my love for her? You see, I can't love a wife that I don't know. I can't be in a loving relationship with somebody that I don't even have a basic description of. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the Colossians here. You can't love a God that you don't know. 
You can't be in a relationship with a God that you aren't increasing your knowledge of, right? That's what he says right here in verses nine and 10. My prayer for you is that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then walking in a manner worthy of him. At the end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. You cannot love a God you don't know. Paul wants us as disciples to grow in a knowledge of God because he has a healthy theology that tells him, and I don't want you to miss this. It's not just that God is good to us, but more importantly, that God is good for us. You see, I imagine that most of us in here have a theology, a broad theology or a basic understanding that say, God does good things. God is good and God does good things. And that's true. But far more importantly than that, it's not just that God is good to us, but far more beautifully than that, God is good for us. That God himself is what satisfies our deepest longings, not just the things he does. That God himself is what we should be after, not just his good works on our behalf. See, the psalmist says it this way, Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. Paul wants his people to want God more than anything else. God is not just good to us, but good for us. And one of the greatest dangers in your life, living in Houston, Texas, or me in Dallas, Texas, and living kind of in this, this Christian and post-Christian world, this, this kind of collision of, of cultures, is that the message of cultural Christianity is the message that God is good to you. And then it stops there. The message of biblical Christianity is far more beautiful than that. It doesn't just say that God is good to you. It says that God is good for you. The message of cultural Christianity is seek God's goods. But the message of biblical Christianity is seek God's goodness. The message of cultural Christianity teaches you to see God like a vending machine. I come to him with my offering of, of money or, or whatever it is, and then I punch a button in and I hope to get something out that I need. But the message of biblical Christianity is that God is the meal himself. Paul is saying, if you want anything more than God, it's not God that you worship, but an idol. Herman Bovink, one of my favorite theologians, says it this way, God and God alone is humanity's highest good. Gospel-centered discipleship starts with a big view of God as being majestic and beautiful, worthy of worship, worthy of, worthy of adoration, and worthy of affection. Paul's prayer here shows us that he thinks there's nothing better for a church than for them to adore God and to want more of him. If God is who he says he is, then we shouldn't just want his things, we should want him. We can't settle for the things of God if we don't get God himself. And Paul tries to tell us growing in a knowledge of God is beautifully and preeminently practical. That being with him, being in his presence helps you live life. You see, he says it in verse 10. As you, if, as you grow in your spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work. You've probably been told or you've heard it somewhere before that as you increase in your knowledge of God, you're actually going to grow colder towards God. That if you, if you really uh, know more about God, then you actually might 
might have a hard heart towards him. We have this weird kind of cultural thing going on in evangelicalism right now that it's actually possible to love the Bible too much because your love for God will diminish. I just don't think that could be further from the truth. The more of God that you get, the more that you love him and the more practical it becomes for your life. See, I love how Paul ties together the practical implication of growing in a knowledge of God with the Christian life of being a mom or being a dad or being a husband or being a wife or being a colleague and a coworker, being a son or a daughter. He's saying you're going to grow in spiritual wisdom the more of God you have in your life. As you increase in this knowledge of God, you aren't gonna bear spiritual pride, you'll bear spiritual fruit. You're going to increase and live life with patience and with joy. Um, Over this past year, this has been the hardest year of my life. Uh, And a second one doesn't come even close. Uh, A year ago, last weekend, so we're about week 53 right now, my wife, Macy, my best friend in the world, I love her. I mean, just preeminently. She's just wonderful. I genuinely wish she could be here because uh, she's just wonderful. She loves Jesus. She's my best friend. Uh, about a year ago, she was experiencing some serious pain in her hip. It's like right here. Uh, I figured it was some kind of arthritis or uh, tendonitis or something. We just couldn't figure out what it was. So she was stretching. She was getting massages. She was doing yoga. She was putting ice on it. She was putting heat on it. We were just just kind of trying everything. And it really wasn't getting a lot better. It was just getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. So finally we said, let's just go get a, let's go see a doctor. Let's go see a scan. Cause the pain kind of was beginning to go on an uptick and increase. So she goes in and gets a scan and the doctor says, yeah, I see something. I need to just send you just to a specialist. So we had an appointment set up for the Friday before Memorial Day weekend last year, 2018. And we're of course a little worried about it, but, but how, how bad could it be? Maybe it's a torn, maybe something's torn. Maybe there's a leg, you know, some kind of repair thing. So we're sitting there, it's 5.30 p.m. on Friday afternoon and we're getting ready to see the doctor. He's getting ready for a three or four day weekend. He just wants to get out of the office, I can imagine. We're sitting there, I'm nervous, of course. I have a little bit of anxiety, but I, we're just trying to walk in faith. And the doctor walks in. And before he really says anything else, he, he shakes our hands and he says, I'm gonna be straight with you, this doesn't look good. This looks really scary. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? Is it tendonitis? Did she tear something? Is, is she gonna need surgery? Is, is there, what, what, what's up? He says, it looks like your wife has a high grade malignancy called a sarcoma. In all likelihood, it's spread uh, throughout her body given, given the size of it right now. It's possible that she has five years or less to live. 50% chance she'll be alive five years from now. We got a little, now I have a four-year-old little boy, two-year-old little girl at home. At that time, they were three and one. And you can just imagine the gut punch that that was. Just, I begin thinking, what, what, what do you mean she has a malignancy? This is, he tells us this is a tumor that usually develops in people who are 80 to 85 plus. And here my wife is 33-year-old young mother of two. We never see things like this. This is a, a medical anomaly. And you begin wondering, where are you, God? Are you serious? Why would, why would this be a part of our story? How could you, how could you, how could you do this? We, we don't know how to walk through a season like this. I don't know how to care for my kids in a season like this. He says, we need to get you in for a, for a biopsy. The doctor says, we need to get you in for a biopsy immediately. So we scheduled a biopsy for Tuesday morning. And you better believe that Saturday, Sunday, Monday were the longest days of our lives. Because you just don't know how to, I wanted them to do surgery that day. I'm serious. I was like, can we do it now? Like, can we start now? And then he does the biopsy and he, apparently, I don't, I don't know all of this. I'm not a medical doctor. 
they have two pathologists looking at pathology reports. And I thought pathology reports were like pregnancy tests. You either have cancer or you don't. Apparently there's more of an art form to it. It's, it's harder to read. And one of the pathologists said, yes, absolutely. This is a high grade malignancy. We need to begin with chemo and radiation immediately. Another pathologist said, we're a little less sure. We need to send this to an expert. So they sent it to an expert at Harvard. Meanwhile, we're meeting with radiologists. We're meeting with chemotherapists. We're getting, we're getting ready for what's going to be a long haul. We get a call about two weeks later uh, from this expert at Harvard University. And he says, it looks like your wife doesn't have cancer. She has what's, what's a very serious tumor still, but it's benign. It's not life-threatening, but it's very painful. It's called myositis ossificans, which you don't need to know that. But basically what it is, is it's, it's, a, it's a small blood clot that forms inside your muscle and eventually grows to the size of a baseball or a softball forming into a bone. You can imagine how painful that is. Imagine in your muscle ripping apart just microscopically every day for the next year, right next to your sciatic nerve. That was our year this past year. There was days she was on 100 milligrams of hydrocodone. And then I began wondering, is, is this going to be an issue? Is this going to be a challenge? It was one of those years where I wasn't asking for grace for tomorrow. I was asking for grace for the next five minutes. Have you ever had a year like that? Or a day like that? A month like that? We're like, I'm not gonna make it. Where are you, God? I need help now. How, how can I, I can't bear underneath this anymore. I, I'm not going to make it. It felt like the walls were caving in. There was nights where my wife and I would just read scripture together. We would pray together. We would sing songs together, just wondering, are the walls going to cave in? Are we going to make it? Is God who he says he is? Is he going to do what we're asking him to do? I remember moments in the hospital room, both for surgeries or pathology reports or, or whatever it was. I was doing everything I could to simply believe and trust the sovereignty of God. To throw myself upon his mercy. And you know what I didn't need in those moments? I didn't need one of my friends or one of the pastors at the village church to come into those moments and give me a lecture on God's providence or give me a lecture on God's sovereignty. I needed to already believe in God's providence and his sovereignty. You see, in the hospital room, you don't need a lecture on the sovereignty of God because that would be oddly cruel. In the hospital room, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the scriptures open. You need the community to whisper into your ears, remember who God is. Remember who he said he is. Don't shift from that hope. You see, we shout truths about God in the light so that we can whisper them in the darkness. I don't want you to miss that. We shout truths about God in days like today when the lights are on and we're gathered together. We shout truths about God's trustworthiness, about his holiness, about his sovereignty, about his mercy, about what he's accomplished in Christ so that in the dark moments when it feels like the entire world is shifting underneath your feet, you can believe it then. You see, we learn truths about God now so that we can persevere with faith and joy then. That's what was going on for us this past year as we dealt with this incredibly challenging and difficult situation. We knew that we had to have grown in our knowledge of God then so that we could endure with patience and joy now. It was in moments like that, that in a weird way, I didn't want to know if God was going to be good to me. I wanted to know, is God good for me? I didn't need my circumstances to change more than I needed to just be with 
God. And if your theology is only that God is good to you, but not that God is good for you, do you know what you're going to do at the first moment of something being shaky? Suffering, difficulty, you'll bail. But if you have a theology that whatever comes, think of Psalm 23, whether he's leading you by green pastures and still waters or into the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. We don't want God's goods. We want God's goodness. We don't want what he has to offer us. We want him. Those two theologies are a world apart. And in seasons of suffering, in seasons of doubt and despair, God in God alone is our highest good. I will share with you, I'll share with more, with more of you afterwards if you have questions. I just want to confess and testify this morning, even outside of a sermon about the goodness of God. We're still walking through seasons of hardship and challenge and suffering, but largely my wife, the tumor is still in her leg. She's largely out of pain. We're considering surgery and other, other medical treatments that she might have to undergo. But I can testify this, that in the midst of the night, God shows up. He is a firm and steady foundation, a refuge for our souls in times of trouble. He is there with his people. He is in the shadow of darkness the valley that feels like it has no end. God is with his people. So my hope for you, as you look at Paul's prayer, is Paul knows that you're gonna walk and endure through various seasons of life. You're gonna have seasons of levity, seasons of lightness, seasons of joy and laughter. And you're gonna have seasons where you're not sure when the tears will stop. You're gonna have seasons where you're not sure if you're ever gonna make it out. But in both of those seasons, we don't need God less. We just need more of him. So increase in your knowledge of God now so that you can endure with patience and joy then. So my hope for you as gospel-centered disciples is that you'd be growing in your knowledge of God first. And second, why? Do we do it just because we want to live pragmatic, practical lives? That's not what Paul says. He says, we do all things for the glory of Christ. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I wish we could do a sermon series on this for a year. I just love it. I've heard Jeff has had some good sermons on this passage as well. One of the things you need to know that's going on in the church at Colossae is you read this passage first, Paul is using a song. He's using a hymn that they're familiar with and he's, he's putting it into the Bible to show them the relationship between worship and theology, that worship and theology aren't at odds, but our worship fuels our theology and our theology rightly fuels our worship. And he begins in verse 15 by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. See, I love that because a lot of Christians have a view of Jesus that, is, that is, is right and good and beautiful. And they have a view of God that is a little bit inconsistent with their view of Jesus. What Paul is saying is that you have a, if you have a view of God that is inconsistent with the person and work of Jesus, you don't have a God to be worshiped, but an idol to be killed. He's saying God is as Jesus does. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says he is the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter one, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. If you want to know what the God of the Bible is like, look no further than Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the face of God. 
the exact imprint of his nature. But the Colossian church, they probably would have been much like this church. They love Jesus. They worship Jesus. They want to be gospel-centered disciples. They want to follow Christ. But they've been doing it for a few years now. Maybe a few decades, some of them. And they began thinking, yeah, Jesus is great. But there's other things in life too, right? There's other things that I can enjoy, that I can enjoy along with Jesus. And so there's really these two groups in the Colossian church. There's two groups who were saying, yeah, we love Jesus and we want to worship Jesus. But, but there's other things that are important in life also. Like what about all the, the physical created things of the world, they would say to Paul. And they would want to add things to Jesus, not worship Jesus less, just enjoy other things also. So they would say, I mean, like it, it's like Jesus and politics or Jesus and sports, Jesus and fitness. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said Jesus and tacos. I'm not kidding. That's a real t-shirt. Jesus and essential oils. Put your hope in Jesus, but really put your hope in essential oils. Jesus and coffee. I love Jesus, but not until I've had that first, uh, you know, pour over. Jesus and friends or community. I love Jesus, but, but I really love him more in community. It was Jesus and anything. See, they had taken the created things of the world, the things that you and I could see, feel, touch, and were meant to enjoy in God's good creation. And they began elevating them to the level of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 16. He's trying to say he created all of these things, both visible and invisible. Why are you, why are you adding these things to him? And then there was another group of people in the church that were adding other created things to him, but invisible things. They would say, well, Jesus and angels. Jesus and the spiritual powers and the forces. They were really interested in the spiritual realm of, the, of angels and the demonic and, and, and things that were kind of mysterious that the Bible doesn't spend as much time talking about. And they wanted to live these kind of spiritually mysterious lives while worshiping Jesus. And Paul is saying, you guys have missed it. You've began adding created things to the creator without even realizing it. And in doing so, you're actually not elevating those things to the level of Jesus. You're actually showing me that you don't have a real view of who Jesus is. You think he is part of the creation also. If you're worshiping the creation, you can't also be worshiping the creator. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And Paul is saying, he is the creator of all things. Here's what I want you to hear. The church at Colossae, and I would argue every evangelical church in America, including mine, including yours, all of us, one of the greatest dangers in our life is domesticating Jesus. One of the greatest dangers to your spiritual life is having a domesticated view of Jesus. And Paul is trying to remind them of exactly who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He made everything, everything through, for, and by him. He is before everything. He holds everything together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the, in, and in the end. Why? So that he would be preeminent in all things. Not some things not just the extra spiritual things or the religious things or your Sundays, but that Jesus reigns sovereignly over everything. Paul is 
reminding them, shocking them back into this idea of who Jesus is and saying, you might not even realize it. You might not even realize what's going on in your spiritual life. Here we are, we're singing, we're opening the scriptures. We're, this is the church he's writing to. He's not writing to a bunch of pagans. He's writing to a local church. And he's saying, you are in danger of growing apathetic to the one who created you and is recreating you in the spirit. You are in danger of being apathetic to the one who has set his mercy, his affection upon you. One of the greatest dangers in your life isn't just renouncing Jesus, but equally dangerous is growing bored with him. What does it look like to grow bored with Jesus? We start adding things to him. You don't stop worshiping him. You just also start worshiping other things. You just grow apathetic. Your heart grows cold. You enter seasons of dryness, doubt, wonder, frustration, See, I think Satan will do anything he can to get your eyes off of Jesus. I don't know this church as well as I would like to know this church, though I feel like I know you pretty well based upon some stories that Jeff has shared. And you're a Christ-loving, Christ-honoring, gospel-centered, discipleship-oriented church, and it's beautiful. It's awesome. Which goes to show me, my assumption is that most of you in here, whether you're members or regular attenders, you're here because you're either interested or because you're worshipers of Jesus. I doubt there are many of you in here, though I could be wrong, there might be a few of people who are on the verge of denouncing Jesus because they hate him. I think if we were to take a poll, many of you would say, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. I I want more of Jesus. Jesus is, yeah, Jesus, I'm, I'm a Jesus person. But I imagine far more of us are in danger of growing bored with him apathetic, wondering if he's worth all of this, wondering if he is who he says he is. Like, what would our life look like if we really believed Colossians 1, 15 through 20? How different would your spiritual life look like if you really believed that that's who Jesus is? See, Paul is trying to show us that once you know who Jesus is, what he has done becomes more meaningful. If you really believe in the forgiveness of sins that has been given to you through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's meaningful not just because of what happened, but because of who it was that accomplished it for you. That he is the image of the invisible God. So the good news of the gospel is not just what was accomplished, but who accomplished it. Here's what I want you to hear. True discipleship. True gospel-centered discipleship is never, ever more than Jesus. It's always more of Jesus. Do you see the difference between those two things? Where do you want more than Jesus? Where are you putting your hope that's Jesus and? Where are you adding to him, perhaps unintentionally and not maliciously, but where have you placed your hope? What, what could be taken away from you today? that would cause you to cease worshiping Jesus. That's your idol. Paul is saying Jesus and Jesus alone because a Christ and spirituality is a Christless spirituality. A Christ alone spirituality is the only true biblical Christianity. So this hymn, this song is meant to remind us that we don't need anything but Jesus. That if he is who he says he is, if, he, if he's the creator, the alpha, the omega, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection. If he is those things, then we don't need anything else. What does it look like to grow bored with Jesus? Your heart is not set aflame when Jesus is worshipped. 
What does it look like to grow bored with Jesus? Your, your heart is not set aflame when he meets you in his word. What does it look like to grow bored with Jesus? When you think about your future, you think about reigning sovereignly over it, not Christ. You respond with anxiety, concern, forgetting that Jesus is the good shepherd. Paul is showing us that there's nothing more beautiful, more majestic, nothing more holy and worthy of all of our adoration and affection than Christ alone. So here's what we've said so far. Gospel-centered discipleship are disciples who are people who grow in a knowledge of God, all for the glory of Christ. And finally this, we are people who stand firm on the gospel. That's the final point. We stand firm on the gospel. Look back at verses 21 and 22. Paul gives us this beautiful phrase where he says, you, and he's not just talking to Colossae, he's talking to me, he's talking to you. We, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We can never get tired of looking at these verses. Verse 21 and 22 are this compact picture of the reminder of the good news of the gospel. Paul says, your posture, your standing, your relationship with God was not one of holiness. It was one of hostility. What you brought into your relationship with God was anger, resentment. You were an enemy of the gospel and an enemy of the king. But he says, through the reconciling death of Jesus, anybody can be made holy, especially enemies, especially those who are hostile. Isn't that incredible? Do you see the move here? That he says the people who are hostile towards God, which is every single one of us, those who were his enemies, those who depart from him, those who are workers of evil deeds, Paul says, hostile. Hostile is not a playful term. It's a term of war. It's a term of active engagement against the activity of God. You were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He says this, through the reconciling death of Christ, you have been made holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's the gospel. That through Christ, we move from hostility to holiness. That through Christ, we move from a standing of hostility to a standing of blamelessness and righteousness. This is the gospel that the family, we were once alienated, separated, that through the death of Christ, we have been adopted and made righteous and reconciled to God at the cross so that we might be presented holy and blameless. The good news of reconciliation and sanctification. So if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to be reminded of the good news in Christ. Remember what I shared this morning about the four spiritual laws, that God loves you, that you are a sinner, that through Christ you can and have been reconciled. Place your hope upon him and nothing else. Christians should never graduate from that good news. As a matter of fact, the longer we go in life, we should simply throw ourselves on that news all the more because we realize the depths of its truthfulness. Would you be reminded this morning that you brought nothing into your relationship with God other than hostility and he has brought nothing other than holiness to you? And he has imparted and imputed the righteousness of Christ to you and made you holy and blameless. That the son of God took upon human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He suffered and died on your behalf. He was literally in a grave for three days with no breath. And then he started breathing again, having defeated Satan, sin and death and every single one of your sins. Then he got up out of the grave 
walked with his disciples for 40 days, ascended into the heavens and breathed out his Holy Spirit upon you and upon all of his disciples so that you might live a life of power, a life of mission, a life of holiness, that that is the good news. And if you aren't a Christian or perhaps you're walking in some skepticism and you're not sure if this is true, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider Christ's love for you. I want you to consider whether it's shame or guilt or wickedness, doubt or sin or hostility, what is holding you back from the cross of Christ and seeing it as your reconciling relationship with God. There's nothing left for you to do. You see, there's only two postures before God. There is no neutral ground. You're either hostile or holy. Every single one of us left to our own devices and to ourselves would be hostile is what Paul is saying, all of us. And there is nothing that you do to move yourself from hostility to holiness, except to put your trust and faith in the one who reconciled you through his body of death at the cross, pouring out his blood for you. So which one describes you? Hostile or holy? God did not wait for you to become holy. He came to you when you were hostile. The order means everything here. He does not say that you were hostile, became holy, so then he loved you. The good news of the gospel is that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He came to us in our hostility and made us holy. And then verse 23 says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Here's what I want you to hear. If you believed that good news 60 years ago, or you believed it six seconds ago, you never get to move past it in the Christian life. Paul is saying this good news of the gospel, he says, never shift from it. Never move from it. Stay stable, stay steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you once heard. You never get to graduate from the gospel. You only go deeper into the gospel. You will make the most growth in the Christian life when you realize you don't have to go anywhere. True development, true growth, true progress in holiness is actually stability, steadfastness, and unshifting from the good news of the gospel. So gospel-centered discipleship comes when we don't move anywhere. We don't want more than Jesus. We want more of Jesus. We don't want more than the scripture. We want more of the scripture. We say, God, we are not going to be satisfied until you give us more of yourself. But this is so counterintuitive, isn't it? I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, that was 15 years ago that I professed Christ. And it feels like I should be moving on to other things now. It was like, yeah, yeah, I believed the good news. But now, now shouldn't, I be, shouldn't I be progressing on to something else? The moment you move past the gospel is the moment you most need the gospel. We make progress in the Christian life when we don't go anywhere but stand firm. So what is discipleship in light of who God is? My prayer for you, for Redeemer, my prayer for the village church, and my prayer for my own personal life, for my kids, for my wife is this, that we would be a people who grow in our love, knowledge, and adoration of God, as Paul prays. That we would do it, why? Because there's nothing more glorious than Christ. Everything else is a created thing, but he alone is the creator. He made you, he made me, and he alone is worthy of worship. What does a Christian life look like? It looks like never moving from the hope of that good news. 
but going deeper and deeper into Christ as we stand firm on the gospel. So I want to ask just a few diagnostic questions for you. As you consider this prayer from Paul, I want you to think about your life, not the person's life next to you or the person who's not here that you think should be you. Three questions. Do you just believe that God is good to you? Or do you more importantly believe that God is good for you? Like, do you want him as your meal every day? Or do you want something else? Like, how desperate are you to be in the presence of God? How desperate are you to grow in your knowledge of him? How desperate are you to say, I need you. You've you've heard the psalmist uh, talk about the deer that's looking for God, right? the deer that, that, that's scampering everywhere. And it can sound like it's a, it's a beautiful picture of a deer kind of scampering over green pastures and eventually finding grass and, or finding a stream to, 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 to drink from. That's not the picture the psalmist is trying to give. The picture that the psalmist is trying to give as it relates to the presence of God is the picture of a deer with a tongue that is swelling, with eyes that are bulging out of its, eye, uh, out of its head, saying, where is the presence of God? Until I find it, I'm not going to stop looking. Until I'm there, until I have him, I will not stop. And unless I have it, I'm going to die. How badly do you want God as your meal? As the one in whom you find all of your satisfactions, all of your longings are fulfilled. Because as Herman Bavink said, he and he alone is your highest good. Looking anywhere else is simply foolishness. The second question is this. Do you have a domesticated view of Jesus? Do you have a Jesus and spirituality? A spirituality that has certainly not renounced Jesus, but has begun thinking, I'm not sure Jesus is enough. I need to add other things to him. I need to to find joy and satisfaction in Jesus and spirituality. Like when was the last time you checked your heart and realized Jesus alone is worthy of my worship and praise? Not my kids. Not my job, not my spouse, not my friends, not my parents. Nothing is worthy of the adoration you give to Christ. When was the last time your heart was set aflame in worship and say, you alone, take everything else from me. I want Christ alone. And the final question is this. Have you committed yourself to the gospel and never shifting? In other words, Have you committed yourself from being a person that's moved from hostility to holiness, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done in you? And have you said both to your own heart and out loud that I never want to shift from this hope? That I don't want to to go from the gospel onto something else, but that I want to stand on the truthfulness of the good news of Christ until my last dying breath. Or have you moved? Have you said, yes, I believe and, and I want this? Paul is saying, don't shift, don't move. Stay unrelentingly steadfast to the good news that is found in Christ. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.